You have no social capital. You don't have many resources, and you don't have people around you to help you. And let's say someone comes along and says to you, let me buy you a meal. How thankful would you be? Now, let's say that person says, let me buy you an iPhone, and I'll make sure you have a telecom cell package that's refilled every month. Call me anytime if you need anything. I got you. How thankful would you be now? Now, let's say that person says, let me buy you a car. I'll teach you how to drive. I'll help you get a driver's license. I'll pay for your car insurance and all the gas you need. How thankful would you be now? Now, let's say that person says, let me help you get into a good school, and I'll pay for your entire education, whatever you need, grade school, university, graduate school, doctorate degrees, whatever education you want, I got you covered. How thankful would you be now? You know, we can keep going on with this, but I think you get the idea. My guess is that we would be somewhat thankful for the meal that we couldn't afford, very thankful for the iPhone that we couldn't afford, extremely thankful for the car that we couldn't afford, and completely overwhelmed with thankfulness for the education that we can never afford. But that actually all depends on the starting point. I asked us to imagine that we were poor and had no social capital. But let's say that you think that you're rich and that you have an established social network. How thankful would you be for the meal, the iPhone, the car, the education? You know, if we have nothing and are given everything, it makes total sense that we would express great love and appreciation to the one who graciously gave us everything we have. You know, we might shout, we might cry, we might give the person the biggest hug we've ever given anybody. We might tell everyone how great of a person this is. We would do everything we could possibly do to let them know how grateful we are for what they've done because they've completely transformed our lives. But if we think that we have everything and are given just add-ons, it wouldn't make much, much sense at all why we would respond in any kind of over-the-top manner. You know, we might even refuse their gracious offers because we don't think we have any need of them. After all, we have ourselves covered. You know, in a way, that's the difference between how different people respond to Jesus. When we see how spiritually poor we are, and how great is our sin. And Jesus comes along and forgives us all of our sins and gives us access to all of his resources. Our whole lives are transformed. And we cannot help but to express great love and appreciation to him. That's the only response that makes sense when our whole lives have been transformed by him. But when we don't see how spiritually poor we are, and we don't think that our sins are that great. And Jesus comes along and, and offers to forgive us all of our sins and give us access to all of his resources. We won't be that interested. We won't be that thankful. And we won't express great love towards him. After all, we didn't think we needed him much to begin with. That's the contrast of responses that we're going to see in today's passage. So the one thing for today is... When we realize our great sin Jesus has forgiven, we will respond with great love to him who has given. When we realize our great sin Jesus has forgiven, we will respond with great love to him who has given. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 36 to 50, and we're finishing up uh, this chapter today. Luke chapter 7, 36 to 50. And just a bit of context before we jump into today's passage. So last week we saw that Jesus was speaking to the crowds concerning John the Baptist, who was the forerunner uh, for the coming of the Christ. And the writer Luke gave a narrative aside explaining how the different people responded to Jesus. Some responded positively, having repented of their sins through John's baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But the Pharisees and the lawyers responded negatively having refused to repent of their sins through John's baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And so John says that the Pharisees and the lawyers who refused to repent had rejected the purpose of God for themselves. And that's where we are in today's passage. So let's read Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. It says this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold... A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, 
she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, that is Simon the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with, uh, with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. If you've read the other gospel accounts, this narrative may sound somewhat familiar because all the gospel accounts have a narrative of a woman who anoints Jesus. However, to be clear, this passage here in Luke is different from the passages found in Matthew, Mark, and John. Uh, in the other passages, the anointing occurs in Judea in Jesus' last week before his crucifixion. The host is a leper. The woman is not identified as a sinner. She pours the perfume on Jesus' head, and the controversy centers on the cost of the perfume. But in the narrative here in Luke, the anointing occurs in Galilee, much earlier in Jesus' ministry. The host is a Pharisee. The woman is identified as a sinner. She pours the perfume on Jesus' feet, and the controversy centers on the character of the woman. So this is a different narrative than similar-sounding ones in the other gospel accounts. We'll look at this passage in two parts. First is a sinful woman anoints Jesus, verses 36 to 40. And second, a Pharisee is admonished by Jesus, verses 41 to 50, where to admonish in this context is to express warning or disapproval. So first, a sinful woman anoints Jesus. Again, verses 36 to 38 say this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. So one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to a banquet held at his house. You know, previously, Jesus was criticized by Pharisees for eating with tax collectors and sinners. But now, a Pharisee invites Jesus to eat with him. We're not exactly sure what prompted this Pharisee to invite Jesus, but Jesus took him up on that invitation. Jesus doesn't show any partiality. He has no problems eating with tax collectors or Pharisees. He was a friend of sinners, whether self-indulgent sinners or self-righteous sinners, it didn't matter. He was a friend to all sinners. For Jesus to be reclining at table in the Pharisee's house was the typical posture for men at a banquet. During the meal, the invited guests wouldn't have been sitting on chairs, but they, uh, they, they would have been reclining on their left elbows and eating with their right hands, and their feet would have been extended away from the table. In the first century Jewish world, uninvited guests were permitted at banquets as long as they remained along the walls. As the invited guests ate and conversed at the table, uninvited townspeople were free to enter and observe the conversation from the walls. And in verse 37, Luke grabs our attention by saying, and behold, and then he introduces a new character to the scene. It's a woman of the city who was a sinner. You know, many older and modern commentators think that this woman is a prostitute, which may or may not be the case. All that's stated here is that she was from the city and that she was known to be a sinner. You know, she could have been a prostitute. She could have been a drunkard, an unjust merchant, a colluder with the oppressive Roman government, or, or something else. We're not exactly told. 
but we know that everyone else in the city recognizes her as a notorious sinner. And when the sinful woman learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she quickly brought an alabaster flask of ointment or perfume, and she went there as soon as she could. Perhaps she got there before Jesus, or maybe she arrived at the same time, but as soon as Jesus reclined at the table, she gets off the walls, and she walks up behind him at his feet. And as she's standing behind Jesus, she's suddenly overwhelmed with emotion, and she just begins to weep. You know, this was not planned. Nobody plans to weep, but this was spontaneous. As she's standing behind him, weeping, her tears are beginning to drop on his feet. And it says that she began to wet his feet with her tears. You know, I don't think anyone would consider one or two teardrops as wetting his feet. In her uncontrollable weeping, she must have been soaking his feet with her tears. And of course, since she didn't plan to weep, she didn't plan to wet his feet with her tears, and so she didn't bring a towel. And so she does what was socially unthinkable. She loosens her long hair. She gets on her knees, and she begins to wipe her tears from his feet with her hair. You know, it was generally socially unacceptable for a woman to loosen her hair in public because it was associated with intimacy, and it was only to be done in the presence of a woman's husband. So all the guests, as soon as she loosens her hair, they see her get on her knees. They see her begin to wipe his feet with her hair. Whether the guests were invited or uninvited, this would have been completely shocking to them, every part of it. And to add to this, we'll find out later that the Pharisee who invited Jesus didn't give him any water to wash his feet upon entering his house. So Jesus' feet would have been covered in dust and dirt. So as you can imagine, it's all getting mixed with her tears, and her hair is getting all covered and tangled in mud. And then she kisses his feet, which in the original Greek means to kiss again and again and again. And so there's mud in her hair, probably mud on her face. She's probably still weeping with tears and snot running down her face. And as with all weeping, it's not silent. At the very least, she's sniffling, if not hyperventilating or making other sobbing sounds. And then she finally does what she first intended to do in bringing the alabaster flask of perfume with her. She anoints Jesus' feet with it. You know, we're not told how she obtained this valuable alabaster flask, but we know that it would have been very expensive. And now all of this would have taken time. So don't imagine this happening at like double speed. This is all very slow. She stood behind Jesus. She wept. She began to wet his feet with her tears. She loosened her hair. She got on her knees. She wiped his feet with her hair. She repeatedly kissed his feet. And she anointed him with the perfume. All this would have been very slow, very extravagant, very shocking. Now we have to ask, what would drive this woman to do this for Jesus? Or perhaps more importantly, what did Jesus do that would cause this woman to respond in this kind of over-the-top way for, for him? You know, did Jesus just buy her a meal? Did he just say hi to her when nobody else would? Did Jesus just preach a good sermon? Well, if I preached a good sermon, would any of you ever respond in this way to me? Probably not, and I, and I, I hope not. Please don't. But ask yourself, what would someone have to do in order for you to respond in this kind of extravagant way uh, to, back to them? What would someone have to do for you in order for you to respond in this kind of extravagant way? You know, Luke doesn't tell us right away, but he leaves us with that lingering question as the narrative goes on. So keep that question in, the, in your mind as we continue through this narrative. So far, nobody has said anything. No doubt that all the conversation probably stopped as this was happening. Everyone is looking at this woman as she's slowly doing this extravagant act. Everyone is left speechless. Everyone is left very uncomfortable. 
You know, I'm sure everyone was thinking all kinds of thoughts, but nobody was voicing out their thoughts. But then we get a glimpse into the mind of the Pharisee. Verses 39 and 40 say this. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So when the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this sinful woman doing this extravagant act for him, he begins to make some conclusions. The first conclusion, this woman is a sinner. Second conclusion, Jesus doesn't know that this woman is a sinner. Third conclusion, a prophet should know that this woman is a sinner. And so his big conclusion is, therefore, Jesus is not a prophet. You know, it's interesting that this Pharisee doesn't wonder about the questions that we were just asking ourselves before. You know, he's not asking, what would drive this woman to do this for Jesus? He's not asking, what did Jesus do that would cause this woman to respond in this kind of over-the-top way? You know, perhaps he already assumed that surely this sinful woman is just sinning right now. You know, she's acting in a disgraceful manner in public. And surely Jesus is somehow sinning by receiving the disgraceful acts of this sinful woman. You know, for whatever reason, this Pharisee is not asking the questions that we were asking. In fact, he's not asking questions at all. But he's making conclusions, lots of them. You know, for us, if someone to examine your thoughts, would they hear more questions or more conclusions? My guess is that for many of us, we're probably quick to jump to conclusions before we ask enough questions to really understand. You know, when someone shares with you, have you already diagnosed their problem in your mind before they finish sharing? And are you already coming up with potential solutions to share with them? When someone makes a mistake, are you already making conclusions about why they made that mistake and then beginning to judge them based on your unfounded conclusions about them? You know, I think we would all do well to ask more questions, to genuinely try to understand before jumping to conclusions. You know, none of us likes it when others assume that they know what we're going through without really taking the time to ask us questions to better understand. None of us likes it when others start giving unsolicited counsel on what we should do next to solve an issue that isn't even accurate to what we think that we're going through. None of us likes it when others begin making uncharitable judgments about us, when they've never taken the time to ask us face-to-face about what we were thinking to allow us to clarify. And yet, many of us do those very same things to others. Those very same things that we don't want anyone to do to us, many of us find ourselves doing that perpetually to others. You know, like this Pharisee, we don't ask many questions, but we jump to conclusions. And then we make further conclusions based on our unfounded conclusions. But notice that the Pharisee didn't voice out his thoughts, but he said to himself. Nonetheless, Jesus answers him. The Pharisee wasn't talking to Jesus. He was was thinking to himself, but Jesus answers his private thoughts. And the irony is that by hearing and responding to the Pharisee's private thoughts, Jesus was demonstrating that he is indeed a prophet. But even more than a prophet, he is the word of God himself that discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, Jesus is the first person in this entire narrative to speak aloud. And the person he chooses to address is Simon the Pharisee. And this comes as a bit of a surprise. You know, given everything that has just happened to him, wouldn't Jesus have something to say to the woman at his feet? You know, she just did this extravagant thing. She's still there weeping, anointing him on his feet. Wouldn't he have something to say to her? But the first person he speaks to is Simon, the Pharisee. 
You know, even though nobody has spoken until now, Jesus knows that there has been constant chatter in the minds of all the guests. They all know that this woman is a sinner. And I'm sure this whole ordeal just provided more ammunition for their judgmental thoughts of her. And not just criticism against the woman, but from the glimpse But from the glimpse into Simon's thoughts, I'm sure everyone was beginning to judge Jesus for receiving this act from this notoriously sinful woman. You know, Jesus will later speak to the woman, but he first chooses to speak to Simon the Pharisee, and perhaps by implication, everyone else in the room who thought like him. So Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Perhaps Simon is taken a bit aback uh, because Jesus has something to say to him rather than the woman. You know, he doesn't ask, what is it, like we might ask. But he responds, say it, teacher. You know, it's not exactly rude, but it's also not very inviting. So first, a sinful woman anoints Jesus. And second, a Pharisee is admonished by Jesus. Verses 41 and 43 say this. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So Jesus begins to tell Simon the Pharisee a brief parable where two people owed a money lender large amounts that both of them could not pay. A denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. So one person owed 500 days, or about 20 months' wages, and the other person owed 50 days, or about two months' wages. Given that the average wages were barely enough for survival, these were overwhelming debts that Jesus makes clear that they could not pay. You know, even though one person's debts were 10 times the amount of the other person's debts, it didn't matter. They both could not pay. And so they were essentially in the same hopeless predicament. And the money lender, seeing that neither could pay their debts, he canceled the debt of both. And then Jesus asked Simon a question. Now which of them will love him more? The interesting thing about this question is that Jesus assumes that both debtors who had their debt canceled will love this money lender. It's not that the person who had the greater debt canceled will love the money lender and the person who had the lesser debt canceled will hate or reject or disregard him. No, Jesus assumes that both will love him for canceling their unpayable debts. Now, debt was a common way to talk about sin. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So as Simon is beginning to grasp what Jesus is saying about his overwhelming sins that need to be forgiven, he answers Jesus a bit reluctantly. Now, which of them will love him more? The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He knows the right answer, but he doesn't quite like those implications. So what's the implication of this parable? You might think that the implication is that Jesus is the money lender, the sinful woman is the one with the greater debt, and Simon is the one with the lesser debt. But that's not quite right. Remember, although the one who had the greater debt canceled may have loved the money lender more, it's assumed that both people who had their debts canceled loved the money lender because they both knew that they could never pay back their debts. So in the parable, if Simon were the one with the lesser debt, then he should have responded by loving the one who had canceled his debt. But as we'll soon find out, Simon did not show much love towards Jesus. And so it evidenced that he was not yet forgiven of his sins. Otherwise, he would have shown some love. You know, this was a subtle admonishment from Jesus. And Simon gets the point, even if he's reluctant to admit it. And so Jesus affirms that Simon has judged rightly. Even though Simon may not like it, he at least understands the point of this parable. But Jesus doesn't just want him to understand it conceptually, so he then begins to apply it to him more personally in a not-so-subtle way. Verses 44 to 47 say this. 
Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is, who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus now dramatically turns towards the woman at his feet, but he's still speaking to Simon even though he's not looking at him. Jesus asked Simon, do you see this woman? You know, both Jesus and Simon are looking at the woman, but they're each seeing someone different. Simon saw who she once was, but Jesus saw who she now is. Simon saw a sinful woman, but Jesus saw a forgiven woman. Simon saw a woman whose debts were great, but Jesus saw a woman whose debts were canceled. You know, the way we see a person and the way we interpret what they do has everything to do with who we think they are. For Simon, this woman was a sinner. So he saw a sinful woman and he interpreted all her over-the-top actions as sinful and disgraceful. But for Jesus, this woman was now a daughter of God. So he saw a forgiven woman, and he interpreted her over-the-top actions as loving and beautiful. The way we see a person and the way we interpret what they do has everything to do with who we think they are. But Simon's problem wasn't just how he viewed the woman, but also how he viewed himself. This is the way that Jesus characterized a Pharisee in another one of his parables. In Luke chapter 18, verses 11 to 12, it says this. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, I hope none of our prayers sound like this. You know, like the stereotypical Pharisee, Simon saw himself as a righteous person. And so he interpreted all his actions as righteous acts. But Jesus now begins to shatter and completely turn upside down how Simon sees the woman and how Simon sees himself. You know, Simon had invited Jesus as an honored guest to eat with him, but he did not treat him that way at all. In the ancient world, when a host invited a guest to their home for a meal, there were certain customs that were expected of the host. Usually when an honored guest arrived, the host would prepare water to wash his dusty, dirty feet after he removed his sandals. The host would also put his hand on the guest's shoulders and exchange a kiss on the cheek on each side of his head. And the host would anoint the, the guest's head with olive oil to refresh them after being in the hot sun and dusty streets. But as a rather impolite and unloving host, Simon did not offer these common courtesies to Jesus as his honored guest. But what Simon failed to provide, the woman more than made up for. You know, rather than using water and a towel, she washed his feet with her tears and her hair. Rather than giving a customary kiss of welcome on each side of his head, she did not stop kissing his feet. Rather than anointing his head with plentiful and cheap olive oil, she anointed his feet with a rare and expensive perfume. And given the parable that Jesus just told Simon, the reason for their vastly different treatments of Jesus had to do with how they each saw themselves and how they each saw Jesus. Simon did not see himself as a great sinner. He didn't think he was in debt at all. Or if he was, it wasn't an overwhelming debt that he could not pay, but something that he could manage himself. And so like many of the Pharisees, he refused to repent of his sins through John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And when John pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Simon wasn't interested. Simon wasn't impressed, and it showed 
in the way that he treated Jesus as his honored guest. In fact, look carefully at verse 47. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, that is Simon, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he, that is the general person who is forgiven little, loves little. Jesus doesn't say to Simon, but you who are forgiven little, loves little. Because Simon didn't even love him a little. Which revealed that Simon wasn't even forgiven a little. In fact, when it comes to sinners before a holy God, there is no such thing as being forgiven a little. Because none of us are little sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags before him. None is righteous. No, not one. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. We are either forgiven all of our sins or none of them. A little won't do. The difference between the person who is forgiven much or forgiven little is not regarding how much sin they are forgiven of, but rather how conscious or how aware they are of how much sin they have been forgiven of. You know, just like the woman, Simon had an unpayable debt that he owed. But he wasn't conscious of how great his sins were. And so he wasn't too interested in forgiveness. And he didn't care too much for Jesus as the one who offered forgiveness. But for the woman... She was fully aware of the fact that she was a great sinner. She knew that she had an overwhelming debt that she could never, ever pay. And so when Jesus came along with the authority to forgive sins, she was not only interested, but she was desperate for all of her sins to be forgiven. She knew she needed it, and she knew it could not be found anywhere else. Now look again at verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. First, Jesus disproves Simon's previous conclusion. Jesus knows full well who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. He knows that her sins are many. He's not surprised. He knew this about her, even as she was doing this. Second, on the surface, it seems like her many sins are forgiven because she loved much, as if it were her over-the-top actions that somehow caused her to be forgiven. But that cannot be the case. Why? Because that completely undermines the parable that Jesus just told. The love doesn't come first, but the canceled debts come first. And then the love comes as an appropriate response towards the one who canceled the debts. Jesus is not giving an opposite conclusion to what his parable just taught. This is how verse 47 is translated in, in the New International Version. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. Her over-the-top expressions of great love towards Jesus are evidence for the fact that she had already been forgiven by Jesus. Not only is that clear from the parable, but personally, could it really be anything else? Again, ask yourself, what would someone have to do for you in order for you to respond in this kind of extravagant love in return? What would make you voluntarily enter a space where you know all eyes are going to be you and all, all eyes are going to be on you, judging you the entire time? Who would voluntarily walk into a space like that? What would make you spontaneously weep so hard as you stood behind the person you wanted to express love to that you started soaking his feet in your tears? What would make you so overwhelmed with emotion like that? What would make you muddy your hair and your face to dry and repeatedly kiss this person's dirty feet? Who would you do that for? What would make you pour out your most valuable possession upon his feet? The greatest thing you, you ever had, you would just pour out at his feet. What would make you do that? I cannot reasonably think of anything that would ever drive me to do something even remotely close to that except the forgiveness of my sins. That I've now been adopted as a son of God. 
I am a wretched sinner, and I deserve God's wrath for my sins. Yet he showed me mercy. He gave me grace. He adopted me. He gave me eternal life. He gave me his son. He gave me everything. My whole life transformed. Nothing else can make sense of what she did for Jesus. That's the only thing that makes sense. All of her sins forgiven. She is a portrait of someone who is fully aware of her great sin and of Jesus' great forgiveness. You know, someone who understands the depths of those two truths, our great sin, Jesus' great forgiveness, that person will express great love towards Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It cannot be any other way. That's all that makes sense. This is God's word in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 14. It says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How did Jesus cancel our great debt of sins? By paying for them himself on the cross. He was nailed to the cross along with all of our debts, and that's where he bore the wrath that our, our debts deserved. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. The gospel is that though God created us, we have sinned against him and are rightly deserving of his wrath. But in his great love for us, he came as the person of Jesus Christ to live the perfect sinless life that we were supposed to live to die on the cross, to take the penalty for sin that we deserve, and to resurrect three days later so that we too would have new eternal life. So now anyone who would repent of their sins, believe in him alone as their Lord and Savior, will be forgiven all their sins and have eternal life in him. The moment we first believed in that gospel is the moment our whole identity changed. Everything about who we are has been completely transformed. We were once wretched sinners, but we are now beloved sons and daughters of God. We were once enemies of God, but we are now friends of God. We were once dead in our sins, but we are now made alive in Christ. We were once prisoners of the domain of darkness and sin, but we are now citizens of the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The moment we first believed in the gospel was the moment of our conversion. And throughout the rest of our Christian life, we become progressively more aware of our sinfulness and God's holiness. And even though that gap appears to be getting larger and larger the, the longer we follow Christ, we rejoice in the fact that Christ has fully paid for all of our sins on the cross, and we are indeed forgiven. And it's not that God is getting more holy or that we're getting more sinful. But as we grow in our relationship with Christ, we become more and more aware of how holy he is and how sinful we are. But the more we realize that, the more we realize how great of a debt Jesus has actually canceled for us. We thought it was just a little debt. But the more and more we walk with him, the more and more we see, wow, we're so surprised by how sinful we are. But Christ was not surprised. He knew we were that sinful, and yet he still chose to go to the cross for us. And we begin to become more and more aware of that. And the more and more we realize that, the more we will express great love to Jesus who gave his life for us to forgive us all of our sins. At this point, I think we need to ask ourselves an honest question. Ask yourself this. When I look at the great love that this woman showed Jesus, does it make sense to me? What she did for Jesus doesn't make sense to me. Am I like all the other guests just staring at her, baffled, perhaps even judging her? What are you doing? Or are we like Jesus saying, that's beautiful. I totally understand why you're doing this. 
if it makes sense to you conceptually, is that the kind of love that you personally express to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? You know, we may not be able to express this kind of love to him in the same way as this woman. But is this our heart posture towards him? Knowing that he canceled all of our overwhelming debts as he hung in our place on the cross. Is it our heart's desire to love and show him love for all that he's done for us? You know, if the great love that this woman showed Jesus doesn't make sense to you at all, then perhaps you have not yet realized how great is your sin, and perhaps you are not yet forgiven. You know, I don't say that in a condemning way, but in a caring, compassionate way. I don't believe Jesus told Simon the parable to condemn him, but to lovingly warn him towards recognizing how great is his sin and to lovingly urge him towards experiencing how great is the forgiveness that he offers. He calls him to himself, just like he calls us to himself. Verses 48 to 50 then say this, And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In verse 48, uh, but also in verse 47, the verb tense for that phrase, are given, it's one word in the original Greek. Uh, the tense is perfect passive indicative, meaning uh, it's understood as your sins have been forgiven, which indicates prior forgiveness. Your sins have been forgiven. Again, that's the whole point of the parable that Jesus spoke. Her sins had already been forgiven, and so she loved much. So if she had already been forgiven and she already knew it, why would Jesus say this to her? I think there's a twofold reason. First, even though she already knew she was forgiven, and that's the very reason that she even did this, I think it was reassuring for the woman to hear from Jesus' own mouth that pronouncement again. Your sins have been forgiven. You know, all of us may know that our parents love us. But there's something powerful about hearing it again from their own lips. I love you, daughter. I'm proud of you, son. We already knew it, but it gives us great reassurance again. Yes, I'm loved. Yes, I'm forgiven. Second, I also think Jesus made this pronouncement for everyone else in that room. For them to know that this woman's sins had been forgiven. Up to that point, they only knew and saw her as a sinful woman. But here, Jesus declares to her whole community that she has a new identity. She is now a forgiven woman. And after Jesus declares to the woman, your sins have been forgiven, all those at the table begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? You know, thus far, only Jesus had been asking questions. But this is the first time that someone other than Jesus is asking a question. This is the first time that they're not jumping to conclusions, but they're pausing to consider what's going on, and they're asking a question. And this is the million-dollar question. This is the billion-dollar question. This is the trillion-dollar question. This is the question that matters for all of life. Who is this? who even forgives sins? This is the question that matters most to us. Who is this who even forgives sins? And Luke leaves us with that question to consider ourselves. Is Jesus just a teacher, a miracle worker, a prophet, or is he more, far more? For who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, Jesus doesn't address their question here, but he keeps his focus on the woman. Even while talking to Simon, Jesus has been looking at her the whole time. Now, I'm sure Jesus hears their question, but he has one more thing to say to this forgiven woman. He says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus makes clear that it was not her expression of great love that saved her, that somehow merited the forgiveness of her sins. No, her faith has saved her. She believed in Jesus at his word. 
She received forgiveness of her sins, and then she expressed great love to him. That's the order. And finally, Jesus sends the woman in the peace of the Lord. She leaves being reassured that despite her many sins, she is at peace with God. When Satan, others, and even herself try to condemn her for her sins later, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard her heart and her mind in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In those times where she feels condemned again, she will remember those very words from Jesus' lips. Your faith has saved you. Your sins have been forgiven. Go in peace. As the narrative comes to a close, everyone is left wondering, so what about Simon? What happened to him? How did Simon respond to Jesus' admonishment? Did he come to realize how great is his sin? Did he repent of his sins and believe in Jesus? Did he receive forgiveness and express great love towards him? Luke doesn't tell us. You know, hopefully Simon would have responded like the Apostle Paul, who was also a Pharisee and who was once a persecutor of the church, but after a humbling encounter with the resurrected Christ, just like this Pharisee just got humbled, Paul became a Christian and one of the greatest missionaries the church has ever known. So hopefully Simon would have responded like that other Pharisee, Paul. But we just don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. He leaves it open-ended. And in the same way, the narrative is left open-ended for us as well. We're left to wonder for ourselves, so what about me? How will I respond to Jesus? And I pray that many of us here today would come to realize how great is our sin and that we would repent of them and repent of our sins and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we receive our new identity in Christ as forgiven sons and daughters of God, I pray that the only appropriate response that we could ever imagine is to drop at his feet to offer up our whole lives as an expression of our great love for him. Nothing else should make sense for us to do when we've received that kind of love and forgiveness from him. So once again, the one thing for today is when we realize our great sin Jesus has forgiven, we will respond with great love to him who has given. Here's a life application. First, how conscious are you of your great sin before God? Spend time reflecting and repenting. If being more conscious or aware of our great sin is the doorway to experiencing Jesus' forgiveness, then it would be wise for us to set aside regular time to reflect on our sins and to repent of them. You know, I'd recommend spending just a few minutes in the evening, even as you're lying in bed ready to go to sleep, to reflect on your day and repent of any sinful thoughts, desires, attitudes, words, or actions, or any failure to do what you know God wanted you to do. Or if not in the evening, spend a few minutes in the morning reflecting and repenting of sins from the previous day and asking God uh, for his grace to empower you to live for him that day. Second, how thankful are you of Jesus' forgiveness? Seek out ways to express love to him. You know, being more conscious of your great sin without being more conscious of forgiveness in Christ would be crushing. If you don't know that Christ's forgiveness is there, there's no wonder that all of us want to avoid looking at our sin. It's too overwhelming. But if we believe that Jesus has paid for all of our sins on the cross as our substitute, then reflection and repentance of sin should produce a great thankfulness, joy, and love for Christ. You know, we may not be able to do what this woman did in the passage for Jesus, but we can express our love and thanks to him in other ways. Perhaps start with just saying, thank you, God, that even though I am a wretched sinner, you have made me your son. You have made me your daughter. Perhaps express love for Jesus by seeking to spend more time with him in the word and in prayer or by talking about him with others in the church, or by speaking about him to others who don't yet know him, or by expressing love to others made in his image. In the various contexts that he's placed us in, with our different constraints and opportunities, let's seek out ways to express great love to him who has forgiven us all of our sins by giving us himself on the cross. And as we continue to realize our great sin Jesus has forgiven, may we respond with greater love to him who has given. 
Can we all stand as we respond now to God's word together? You know, the message from this passage is not complicated. But it's very difficult for us to take in. It's coming to the realization that we are great sinners, that we are in great debt to God that we can never pay, that we deserve his wrath for our sins. It's not easy to take in. But if we realize that that's the truth, then what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross is the greatest news we could ever hear. That though we are wretched sinners who deserve God's wrath, he loved us, had mercy on us. He went to the cross. He took the penalty for our sins so that we might be forgiven all of our sins, past, present, future. So now if we repent, believe in him, we can be forgiven, we can be saved, we can be adopted, we can have eternal life, we can have him. We have everything in him. But it begins by recognizing, being conscious, being aware of how sinful we are. So let's begin there. You know, if you are a follower of Christ, let's not assume this. Let's never assume this. But the more we recognize how sinful we are, the more we realize how great is God's love for us that he would do this for us and allow that to empower and motivate a life of following him, loving him with all of our lives. And perhaps just start with just a simple thank you. Thank you, God. I don't deserve this. Sorry I don't say thank you enough. Help me never to take this for granted. Thank you. If you're not a follower of Christ, you know, this is Jesus' loving warning to you. It's just like he gave to Simon. It's not to condemn you, but to draw you in. His forgiveness is there for you if you would recognize your great sin, your great debts. But he paid it all if you would believe in him. Perhaps just start with God. I just want to know if this is true. Help me to realize that if this is true, then, then help me to have faith. And begin to ask him for him to, to show you who he is, that this is what he's done for you. So in whatever way that we need to respond, let's respond now in our personal prayers. Uh, to God's word. Let's pray.